Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Prefatory Note This book needs a preliminary note that its scope be not misunderstood. The view suggested is historical rather than theological and does not deal directly with a religious change which has been the chief event of my own life, and about which I am already writing a more purely controversial volume. It is impossible, I hope, for any Catholic to write any book on any subject, above all, this subject, without showing that he is a Catholic. But this study is not specially concerned with the differences between a Catholic and a Protestant. Much of it is devoted to many sorts of pagans, rather than any sort of Christians. And its thesis is that those who say that Christ stands side by side with similar myths, and his religion side by side with similar religions, are only repeating a very stale formula contradicted by a very striking fact. To suggest this, I have not needed to go much beyond matters known to us all. I make no claim to learning and have to depend for some things, as has rather become the fashion, on those who are more learned. As I have more than once differed from Mr. H. G. Wells in his view of history, it is the more right that I should here congratulate him on the courage and constructive imagination which carried through his vast and varied and intensely interesting work, but still more on having asserted the reasonable right of the amateur to do what he can with the facts which the specialists provide. Introduction The Plan of This Book There are two ways of getting home, and one of them is to stay there. The other is to walk round the whole world till we come back to the same place, and I tried to trace such a journey in a story I once wrote. It is, however, a relief to turn from that topic to another story that I never wrote. Like every book I never wrote, it is by far the best book I have ever written. It is only too probable that I shall never write it, so I will use it symbolically here, for it was a symbol of the same truth. I conceived it as a romance of those vast valleys with sloping sides, like those along which the ancient white horse of Wessex are scrawled along the flanks of the hills. It concerned some boy whose farm or cottage stood on such a slope and who went on his travels to find something, such as the effigy and grave of some giant. And when he was far enough from home, he looked back and saw that his own farm and kitchen garden, shining flat on the hillside, like the colors and quarterings of a shield, were but parts of some such gigantic figure, on which he had always lived, but which was too large and too close to be seen. That, I think, is a true picture of the progress of any real independent intelligence today, and that is the point of this book. The point of this book, in other words, is that the next best thing to being really inside Christendom is to be really outside it, and a particular point of it is that the popular critics of Christianity are not really outside it. They are on a debatable ground, in every sense of the term. They are doubtful in their very doubts. Their criticism has taken on a curious tone, as of a random and illiterate heckling. Thus they make current an anti-clerical cant as a sort of small talk. They will complain of parsons dressing like parsons, 
as if we should be any more free if all the police who shadowed or collared us were plainclothes detectives. Or they will complain that a sermon cannot be interrupted, and call a pulpit a coward's castle, though they do not call an editor's office a coward's castle. It would be unjust both to journalists and priests, but it would be much truer of journalists. The clergyman appears in person and could easily be kicked as he came out of church. The journalist conceals even his name, so that nobody can kick him. They write wild and pointless articles and letters in the press about why the churches are empty, without even going there to find out if they are empty, or which of them are empty. Their suggestions are more vapid and vacant than the most insipid curate in a three-act farce, and move us to comfort him after the manner of the curate in the Bab ballads. Your mind is not so blank as that of Hopley Porter. So we may truly say to the very feeblest cleric, Your mind is not so blank as that of indignant layman, or plain man, or man in the street, or any of your critics in the newspapers, for they have not the most shadowy notion of what they want themselves, let alone of what you ought to give them. They will suddenly turn round and revile the church for not having prevented the war, which they themselves did not want to prevent, and which nobody had ever professed to be able to prevent except some of that very school of progressive and cosmopolitan skeptics who are the chief enemies of the church. It was the anti-clerical and agnostic world that was always prophesying the advent of universal peace. It is that world that was, or should have been, abashed and confounded by the advent of universal war. As for the general view that the church was discredited by the war, they might as well say that the ark was discredited by the flood. When the world goes wrong, it proves rather that the church is right. The church is justified, not because her children do not sin, but because they do. But that marks their mood about the whole religious tradition. They are in a state of reaction against it. It is well with the boy when he lives on his father's land, and well with him again when he is far enough from it to look back on it and see it as a whole. But these people have got into an intermediate state have fallen into an intervening valley from which they can see neither the heights beyond them nor the heights behind. They cannot get out of the penumbra of Christian controversy. They cannot be Christians, and they cannot leave off being anti-Christians. Their whole atmosphere is the atmosphere of a reaction, sulks, perversity, petty criticism. They still live in the shadow of the faith and have lost the light of the faith. Now the best relation to our spiritual home is to be near enough to love it. But the next best is to be far enough away not to hate it. It is the contention of these pages that while the best judge of Christianity is a Christian, the next best judge would be something more like a Confucian. The worst judge of all is the man now most ready with his judgments, the ill-educated Christian turning gradually into the ill-tempered agnostic, entangled in the end of a feud of which he never understood the beginning, blighted with a sort of hereditary boredom with he knows not what, and already weary of hearing what he has never heard. He does not judge Christianity calmly as a Confucian would. He does not judge it as he would judge Confucianism. He cannot, by an effort of fancy, set the Catholic Church thousands of miles away in strange skies of mourning and judge it as impartially as a Chinese pagoda. It is said that the great St. Francis Xavier, 
who very nearly succeeded in setting up the church there as a tower overtopping all pagodas, failed partly because his followers were accused by their fellow missionaries of representing the twelve apostles with the garb or attributes of Chinamen. But it would be far better to see them as Chinamen and judge them fairly as Chinamen than to see them as featureless idols merely made to be battered by iconoclasts, or rather, as cockshies to be pelted by empty-headed cockneys. It would be better to see the whole thing as a remote Asiatic cult, the mitres of its bishops as the towering headdresses of mysterious bonzes, its pastoral staffs as the sticks twisted like serpents carried in some Asiatic procession, to see the prayer book as fantastic as the prayer wheel, and the cross as crooked as the swastika. Then, at least, we should not lose our temper as some of the skeptical critics seem to lose their temper, not to mention their wits. Their anti-clericalism has become an atmosphere, an atmosphere of negation and hostility, from which they cannot escape. Compared with that, it would be better to see the whole thing as something belonging to another continent, or to another planet. It would be more philosophical to stare indifferently at bonzes than to be perpetually and pointlessly grumbling at bishops. It would be better to walk past a church as if it were a pagoda than to stand permanently in the porch, impotent either to go inside and help, or to go outside and forget. For those in whom a mere reaction has thus become an obsession, I do seriously recommend the imaginative effort of conceiving the Twelve Apostles as Chinamen. In other words, I recommend these critics to try to do as much justice to Christian saints as if they were pagan sages. But with this we come to the final and vital point. I shall try to show in these pages that when we do make this imaginative effort to see the whole thing from the outside, we find that it really looks like what is traditionally said about it inside. It is exactly when the boy gets far enough off to see the giant that he sees that he really is a giant. It is exactly when we do at last see the Christian church afar, under those clear and level eastern skies, that we see that it is really the church of Christ. To put it shortly, the moment we are really impartial about it, we know why people are partial to it. But this second proposition requires more serious discussion, and I shall here set myself to discuss it. As soon as I had clearly in my mind this conception of something solid in the solitary and unique character of the divine story, it struck me that there was exactly the same strange and yet solid character in the human story that had led up to it because that human story also had a root that was divine. I mean that just as the church seems to grow more remarkable when it is fairly compared with the common religious life of mankind, so mankind itself seems to grow more remarkable when we compare it with the common life of nature. And I have noticed that most modern history is driven to something like sophistry, first to soften the sharp transition from animals to men and then to soften the sharp transition from heathens to Christians. Now the more we really read in a realistic spirit of those two transitions, the sharper we shall find them to be. It is because the critics are not detached that they do not see this detachment. 
it is because they are not looking at things in a dry light that they cannot see the difference between black and white. It is because they are in a particular mood of reaction and revolt that they have a motive for making out that all the white is dirty gray, and the black not so black as it is painted. I do not say there are not human excuses for their revolt. I do not say it is not, in some ways, sympathetic. What I say is that it is not in any way scientific. An iconoclast may be indignant. An iconoclast may be justly indignant. But an iconoclast is not impartial. And it is stark hypocrisy to pretend that nine-tenths of the higher critics and scientific evolutionists and professors of comparative religion are in the least impartial. Why should they be impartial? What is being impartial when the whole world is at war about whether one thing is a devouring superstition or a divine hope? I do not pretend to be impartial in the sense that the final act of faith fixes a man's mind because it satisfies his mind, but I do profess to be a great deal more impartial than they are, in the sense that I can tell the story fairly, with some sort of imaginative justice to all sides, and they cannot. I do profess to be impartial in the sense that I should be ashamed to talk such nonsense about the Lama of Tibet as they do about the Pope of Rome, or to have as little sympathy with Julian the Apostate as they have with the Society of Jesus. They are not impartial. They never by any chance hold the historical scales even. And above all, they are never impartial upon this point of evolution and transition. They suggest everywhere the gray gradations of twilight, because they believe it is the twilight of the gods. I propose to maintain that whether or no it is the twilight of the gods, it is not the daylight of men. I maintain that when brought out into the daylight, these two things look altogether strange and unique, and that it is only in the false twilight of an imaginary period of transition that they can be made to look in the least like anything else. The first of these is the creature called man, and the second is the man called Christ. I have therefore divided this book into two parts, the former being a sketch of the main adventure of the human race insofar as it remained heathen, and the second a summary of the real difference that was made by it becoming Christian. Both motives necessitate a certain method, a method which is not very easy to manage, and perhaps even less easy to define or defend. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.